So our scripture reading for today is John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Scripture reads, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so the message today is why this gospel was written. Why this gospel was written. Um, we um, were together a few weeks ago, and uh, it just so happened in the providence of God that it, it was John chapter 19, if you remember. And that was the, the crucifixion, and we went through that. And at the end, if you recall, you know, our Lord... Uh, said, it is finished. And uh, again, in the providence of God, you know, I'm, I'm back again, and I got the email from uh, Brother Neil, and he said, hey, it, just the way it worked out, it'll be chapter 20, then the next week will be chapter 21. So it's 19, 20, and 21. And so uh, rather than just, you know, completely come in and, and do something totally new from John chapter 20, uh, I thought it would be wise uh, to refresh our memory a little bit on John 19 so that we then step into, into uh, chapter 20. So after the agony and shame of his death by means of Roman crucifixion, Jesus said, it is finished. And so the last time we asked the question, what is it that's finished? It's a strong statement. It is finished. What is it that's finished? And so John 19, 28 through 30 says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things <clears throat> had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, the, the story of the Bible, from cover to cover, in, in all of its shades, all of its hues, whether it's law, uh, whether it's poetry or wisdom literature, prophecy, whether it's historical narrative, all of the scriptures chronicle, they tell mankind, they tell us the mighty works of God as he carries out what's called redemptive history. And so for centuries, man has kind of at large, not us, but man at large has kind of convinced ourselves that we are independent of God's rule and that we're independent of God's authority. And so while we've been carrying out our plans, you know, conquering and building and inventing and exploring and doing all the things that we do, God is actually superintending human history for his own ends and for his own glory. And so because of the fall of all mankind and, and Adam and Eve, which we, you know, we formally call our first parents, you guys are probably familiar with that, because of the fall of all mankind uh, through Adam and Eve, um, we ever since then, have been spiritually dead. And so man now exists in a state 
of total spiritual helplessness. And so we can do good toward earthly things. We can do earthly good. You, you, some of you, I'm not assuming that everyone in here thinks the same or knows all the same things. So I, I try to speak in such a way that even if there's someone here that thinks differently, everything is clear. And so when we say in the faith, you know, in the Christian faith that there's no such thing as a good person, you know, we can kind of look around us and many of us know people that are not Christians. And we say, man, if, if I didn't know any better, I would swear that person's a Christian. I mean, they're kind, they're patient, you know, they're generous, you know. So there are lots of quote unquote good people out there. The difference is why we do that. That's what matters. It's not just being patient or just being generous in and of itself. If I'm generous and I have no knowledge of God, no reverence for God or no fear of God, ultimately the generosity is not done to glorify God. It may be meant to alleviate suffering or help someone, and that's fine, but that's not the same thing as doing something to glorify God. Think of it as singing a song. We could sing a song, and the song may convey a great message, but singing a song is not the same thing as worshiping God. So human goodness and what we can do does not necessarily mean we are spiritually alive. I heard someone say, again, we can do good toward earthly things. We can do good in that kind of way, but man does not naturally do good heavenward. We don't naturally do that kind of good. And so we can, we can map the human genome. We invent wireless communication. We even go to space. We can explore space, but our hearts have no desire to bow in humility to our maker and receive his love and his guidance. And so after creation, there was the problem of sin, or there is the problem of sin. Then there's God's perfection, the perfection and, and holiness of God. And in God's love and patience and caring for his creation, he made simple word we would say is commitments. He made promises. The, the biblical word we use for that is covenants. They're covenants. God made covenants throughout history. He gave us the scriptures, and before the scriptures, were, the canon was closed, before the Bible is complete, in essence, we had prophets to guide us and teach us along the way, because again, God is working out redemptive history. So we had prophets to guide us, and then we had what's called the, the propitiation or the payment, the satisfaction, uh, God's appeasement for what is due to him on the cross. So when Jesus says it is finished, what he means is this process that not only his own crucifixion, but this process is now reaching the end. And so the cross of Jesus means that God requires something that none of us can afford. I have seen recently on some of these crime TV show programs where a person will be convicted of a crime, and biblically, you know, scripturally, rightfully, in all justice, uh, the person should get the death penalty, but the way our legal system is, in many places we rejected that, and so the person will be assigned to four life sentences. That's dumb. That's dumb. 
it's literally, they'll say, you are, you are given 557 years. That's just symbolic. That doesn't mean anything. You're only going to live maybe, you know, until 80. And so they'll give a person 400 years, or literally, you know, three consecutive life sentences. You're going to be in jail for 40 years and you're going to die. But that's the kind of foolishness we wind up with when we reject, you know, what, what God says. And so the cross says that man owes something that we cannot pay. I thought about, you know, wh- whether or not to kind of say it in this way. I hope it's not too crass. But we've heard somebody say, if you want something done right, you've got to do it yourself. So no one else can fulfill that. No one else can pay that debt. It's something that we're not capable of paying. And so God himself condescended to man to, to help humanity and to save us and to settle a debt that we cannot afford. And so for centuries and centuries, God condescended at great expense. And finally, when the way was made for his chosen people all over the world, Jesus shouted, it is finished in John chapter 19. And so now we come to John 20. And so let's look at four testimonies that that we see here, because all of them in one form or another started as doubtful skeptics. So the, the kind of overview for John 20 is that there's Mary Magdalene and John and Peter, and then Thomas is mentioned a little bit later. And so this is after the crucifixion Mary rushes to the tomb early the next day, finds it empty, runs back and tells the apostles the tomb is empty. And over in Luke, I believe it is, they said, this is foolishness. What are you talking about? So they didn't immediately believe. So even though they were there and they heard the word and saw and experienced and ate with our Lord and everything, when when it came right down to it, If you remember, they were sitting in a room with the door locked, afraid of the Jews. Because the Jews in in Christ's earthly ministry opposed his ministry. They were, in effect, his enemies, religiously speaking. And so um, they they were basically hiding after all of that. And so uh, I think that's that's very telling. We'll, We'll talk about that in a bit. And so what we have up front is... uh, the testimonies that we can look at. So the first testimony is kind of the investigator's testimony, sort of, sort of a logical investigation. So the sequence of events goes that they wanted to hurry to bury Jesus, and the process was, you know, roughly 75 pounds of spices and various perfumes that you uh, put on the corpse. The body is then wrapped tightly. And so Mary uh, comes early, uh, runs to Peter and John. Peter and John show up. They're instant, you know, investigators. And so John gets there first. And scripture says that the linens were there. So the wrappings were there. And this is important because the Jews didn't want him moved. If you remember, they knew the potential of what could happen if if anything went wrong with this because of the claims that Christ made and the following that he had. 
So it was in their best interest to say, hey, make sure no one interferes or tampers with, with this tomb. And so they didn't want him moved. They put soldiers in front. The, the worst thing that could happen was that his body is stolen or somehow moved. The other option is that maybe there were robbers. Why isn't the body there? There are robbers. Well, uh, I live in a, a cul-de-sac, and on occasion there's a power outage, you know, after a thunderstorm or something like that. And we forget how much sort of ambient light is there. You know, they call it light pollution because there are nearby places. There's, there's street lights, even though they're far away. And when the power goes out and there are no street lights or anything, it's blacker than normal. It's very, very dark. And I realize, wow, this is actually normal. This is, this is normal darkness. But I'm just so used to going outside and seeing a you know, street lamp kind of far away and the light kind of bleeding over to where we are. And when, those, when the power goes out, I mean, it is black, even with the moon. I mean, it's very, very, very dark. And so robbers in pitch black darkness would not take the time to unwrap a corpse like that and then fold the cloths and leave the cloths there because that's what they found when they arrived. And so uh, I didn't read it in any commentary. You know, scripture doesn't say this, but this is my personal opinion, which doesn't amount to a hill of beans, but I will nonetheless share, uh, share it with you, is that uh, at the resurrection, uh, if you recall, when Mary shows up, there were two angels there. And they said, what, what, what are you looking for? And it is my belief that probably, I wouldn't teach it, I'm not asserting it, it's, it's just a thought, because it is interesting that they're folded, the cloths are folded there. And we've all seen royalty, you've all seen princesses or, or, or with chambermaids or princes, and you have people that attend to you. They'll come and brush your hair, they'll put your shoes on, they'll do things like that. And so in my mind, I just envisioned that at the resurrection, his angels were there, which angels, you know, are servants of God. And that the angels, you know, attended to him and like royalty and carefully unwrapped things and, and left things and set them in order. But that's pure speculation. That's, that's just me. But I believe that since he is a king, angels ministering to him did it as he sat. And so... The empty tomb uh, was not enough for Mary. She was beside herself when she got there. And so we have the testimony that's sort of relational. It's a relational testimony. Few people had more devotion to Jesus than Mary Magdalene did. And here's, here's why. In Luke 8, it says that Jesus was going from one city and village to another. He was preaching. And it says that the 12 were with him, and it's highly unusual, and also some women were with him. The women had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. So notice both. Not that, you know, a sickness is an evil spirit, but it was both. There were some physical, literal healings of illnesses or ailments, sicknesses that the women had. And in Mary, Mary's case, it was spiritual. It was an exorcism. 
says one of the women was Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. So this is a woman that lived in a demonic prison. I mean, this woman was enslaved by demons, and Jesus set her free. He changed her life. And it says that afterward, she expressed her grateful love by aiding Jesus and his disciples in their travels. And so that's why, like us, followers of Jesus, we serve him. It's an expression of our gratitude. We can't help but serve him because we've been set free in one form or another. And so her experience was that she was standing outside the tomb crying. She stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head, one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had, had been laying. Now, this is interesting because if there's anyone on earth that would be sensitive to spiritual entities, you would think it would be this lady who was delivered from seven demons. You think if a couple of angels were there, she would kind of go, I think those are angels. But I believe that there, there are many cases in Scripture where we see where people entertained angels without knowing it. So it does not necessarily mean that they you know, manifested themselves in such a way that you would necessarily know they were angels. But nonetheless, there were two angels there. So if there's anyone on earth that would be sensitive to that, you know, it would have been her. And she was very, very grieved. She's sobbing, the, the word. If you look at the word and what it says, it's not just, oh, she's crying, kind of boohooing. She was sobbing very, very heavily. And if you can put that in, in its context, you always want to read the scriptures, you know, what we say is existentially. So remember, this is a long time ago. Middle Eastern culture, it's not like us. If any of you know any older Middle Eastern women, it's very, very emotional, very emotional, you know, about children or husband or family. My, my mother is from Iran, and so just very, you know, just emotional. So I can imagine this woman who had this tremendous, tremendous experience delivered and like a typical sort of maybe a motherly type of figure or elder brother, however you want to put it. She goes to the tomb and she's, where is he? Where is he? Where is he? Where is he? Where's the body? Where is he? What's going on? Where is he? Where is he? And so the deepest and, and best personal relationships happen in person. So she's beside herself. So the angels say, what, why are you crying? She says, because they've taken away my Lord. I don't know where they've laid him. I can imagine her. Hopefully you can see her in this kind of emotional panic you know, almost motherly, you know, where, where's my loved one? Where is my child? And when she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. So she's a mess. I mean, she was a mess. And she recognizes him and says, my teacher, my teacher, there you are. Rabboni is what she says, my teacher. And so for her, the, just finding the empty tomb that was not sufficient enough for her to just say, well the, well, the tomb is empty, so therefore, you know, I believe and everything else fills itself in. For her, that wasn't enough. His voice, she needed his voice. She needed that. Not just facts, data, I saw this, I saw an empty tomb. She needed his voice, she needed him. And then Jesus says something that no theologian resolutely or fully clearly understands. 
He says, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, and my God and your God. And so her relationship with him was different now. It's not like before. It's different. Her new relationship was to be just like everyone else's would be, like, like yours and mine. Her new relationship would no longer just be, you know, I have you, like I have you. Her new relationship would be like yours and mine. It would be by faith. It's not just about clinging to me, touching me, holding me, grabbing my feet. He says, stop clinging to me. I've not yet ascended to my father. But tell my brothers, tell them that I ascend to my father and your father and my God and your God. And, and so he did speak to her. That's what she needed. And he did speak to her. And he speaks to us today. He speaks through his word. He speaks through the scriptures. He's saying, don't just touch me and say, okay, I've got him because I physically am touching him. He's saying, know me beyond just my flesh, just beyond my physical presence, beyond sight, beyond sound. Just like the billions who are going to come after you, Mary. At this point, you have to know me in a different way. You have to understand me in a different way. Cling to my feet, cling to me in a different way. So she needed more than an empty tomb. You need evidence, there's grave clothes. You need relationship, relationship with Christ is still available. Now you might say, well, okay, this is a story, and I don't know that I can necessarily believe this story. Uh, if I believe a story, it, it has to be realistic. It has to be a realistic story. So one way that historians assess history, because none of us were there necessarily to see things, and there are all kinds of things written, you know, stories, historical accounts, is one of the ways they assess it is the way that people are portrayed. And so the people in this story who would be the heroes, you know, the apostles, are unbelieving, not filled with faith, kind of tripping over themselves. They didn't believe him. They didn't fully understand. They didn't believe their master's word. Remember, they were, after living and walking with Jesus, after the crucifixion, hearing from Mary, then going back to an empty tomb, you find them in a room with the door locked together, afraid, worried about what the Jews are going to do. So, if you're going to cook up a story, you don't paint the story that way. And in, in, here's another factor. In ancient Greek and Jewish understanding, a woman's testimony, ladies, a woman's testimony was not admitted in court because women are fickle, they're more prone to emotionalism. The story's not necessarily, I mean, you know how women are. 
Don't shoot the messenger. So that's literally, you know, the thinking that dominated here. So if you're cooking up a story that you want to sell in that time, you don't make a woman the chief eyewitness. That's a discrediting fact. The only reason you would put something like that in is because you're going, that's what happened. What do you want me to do? That's what happened. You include it because it's true. So if you want a real story, it smacks of reality. A woman was an eyewitness, and the men were not behaving very nobly. They didn't say, come, come, calm down. We, we've got this under control. That's not what they did. That's not how it went. They were together in a room, scared of the Jews that opposed the ministry of Jesus. Uh, Robert Jameson, in, in his uh, commentary on John, comments about chapter 20, and he says, The particulars of this story have a singular air of artless truth about them. Mary, in her grief, runs to the two apostles. They were soon to be so closely associated in proclaiming the Savior's resurrection. They, followed by Mary, hastened to go run and see with their own eyes. John, the younger disciple, outruns the older one because love supplies swifter wings. He stoops, gazes in, but he does not enter the sepulcher, the tomb, held back probably by a reverential fear. The bolder Peter coming up goes in at once and is rewarded with bright evidence of what had happened. So such a small detail, you know. Peter and John go running, and it says John outruns Peter, and he just happens to get there first. And if you recall from the Gospels, who was the disciple that Jesus loved? It was John. So there's the skeptic's testimony. And so the skeptic's problem is not necessarily a factual one. Um, if any, well, not if, I'm certain that many of you have friends, family members, uh, lo you know, loved ones that you wish very much for them to be saved. And maybe children, this happens a lot with young children because we live in a you know, humanistic, materialistic, secular environment. And so there's a certain epistemology and presupposition that kind of governs the way we're taught, like since we're that little. And so this happens you know, really a lot with the younger generation too. But the skeptic's problem is not a problem of facts. It's not a problem of, well, I just need the right data. Like if you just show me the right data and the facts, then, then I'll buy it. Because that presumes that we are governed by reason and logic, not by a sinful nature. And I can prove it to you. I can prove it to you. If we were governed, just purely, just give me raw data, like irrefutable data. Just give me facts, right? There isn't a human being on the planet that doesn't know smoking is bad. I mean, raw, I mean, there's, is there anyone who would argue like, no, 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 no. That's, yeah, it depends how you look. There's not a, you cannot find a human being on the planet who goes, this is good. Everybody knows it's bad. Guess how many people smoke? 
1.1 billion people smoke. But you're telling me that if I could just give you the right facts and data about the gospel and the Bible, you would believe it. Baloney. It doesn't matter what I give you. You're not going to believe it because the issue is not, well, I'm a rational, governed logic. I need to see things. No, you don't. You, that's, that's not why you believe stuff. That's not why we do what we do. We do what we do with, with data when we want to do it. So we don't necessarily want facts. What we want is an accomplice. Like, I want the data that's going to tell me what I want to believe. Then I, then I buy data. Because remember, the same people that say there's no such thing as sex, there's no such thing as male and female, these are the same people that invented the microscopes that can look and go X, Y chromosomes. Like, I'm looking, right? Show me God in a microscope. Okay, I show you sex in a microscope. I show you male, female, like they're different. Those are the same scientific and medical academies going, it's, it's all just, that's just, there's no such thing as gender, right? The same medical academies, the same edu educational institutions. So the issue is not a lack of data or facts or anything like that at all. That's not what it is. We know smoking's bad. Over a billion people smoke. Paul talks about that. I'm, I'm cross-referencing this from, from the top of my head, but I believe it's in, I believe it's, it's either, I believe it's Romans 7, if you recall, when Paul says, I affirm the law of God in my mind. So he's saying logically, mentally, intellectually, even theologically, remember Paul is saying, I know and affirm and agree that this is what is right. Like, I know what is right. I know what is good. I know what is true. Remember, he says, but there's another law at work in my members, meaning my, my body part. So it's as if my mind knows one thing. He goes, but my body seems to do something else. Remember that? I believe it's Romans 7. And so he talks about that. He says, it's, he said, it's like, I've met, he said, it makes no sense to me. I don't understand it. He said, I love the law of God in my inward man, in my mind. I know what is true. I affirm what is right. I know what is good and logical. And he says, but I don't live that way. I don't consistently behave that way. And then you recall, he says, who will rescue me from this body of death? And he says, thanks be to God for the Lord Jesus Christ. He will, he will rescue me from this body of death. So oftentimes with skepticism, what we really want is a God conformed to our minds instead of conforming our minds to him. It's sin, not science that's in the way. If you know, you know any history at all, the greatest scientists that the world has had that have made some of the most incredible discoveries were hard theologians. I mean, they were straight believers because they understood that God is consistent. And since God is consistent, the universe is consistent. There have to be repeatable patterns because there's an order to it, because it comes from an ordered mind. It comes from a sovereign creator. And so that is why science works. But we divorce it from God. And so they saw miracles, they touched Jesus, went to the tomb, heard the word of truth, meanwhile, together in a room with the door locked. And so in verses 19 through 20 in this chapter, 
It says, so when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said, Shalom. He said, peace, peace be with you. Shalom. And when he said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. To me, guys, look, it's me. He showed it to them. And the, the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. That's verses 19 and 20. Now, 20 and 24 say, But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I'm not going to believe that. There's no way. Not going to believe that. After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and he stood in their midst and said, Shalom, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, reach your finger here, and see my hands, and reach here your hand, and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. And then Thomas makes this really deeply theological statement here. He says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, because you've seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they, us, you and me, blessed are they who did not see yet believed. And so John includes Thomas, the skeptic, he includes him last. When Mary saw him, she said, my teacher. And Thomas said, when he says, my Lord and my God, that's a, that's a translation. Literally, what he said is, the Lord of me, the God of me, my Lord and my God. He said, the Lord of me, the God of me. He recognized Jesus as the supreme master, the God of all. And so this isn't just about factual affirmation of doctrine. You know, yes, I believe that. Yes, I believe the Bible. Yes, I believe Jesus existed. Okay, you know, I believe, I believe that. You know, I pray, I believe that. That's not what this is. This is personal. So it's not only agreeing with a set of facts and a catechism. We must, of course, agree to them. But that in itself is not saving faith. All of our lives play out under God's watchful care. So he sees us. I mean, we know that. He sees us. But would he say, you're not coming to me about your life. You only want me to come to you about your life. Does the way you live the way I live and what I consume through my eyes and my ears and my mouth 
and engage with my senses reflect the truths that we profess. Thomas said, the Lord of me, the God of me. You are master, Lord, and God over me. It was a personal, direct affirmation of truth. God has mastery of the universe. And so by logical extension, he must have mastery over us, over me, over you. So every relationship, especially young people, relationships. So every relationship, every endeavor, every goal, they must all be for him. Honor God where you are in whatever you do. Honor God where you are in whatever you do. Jesus said that believing on me because you've seen me is a blessing. But that's easy. How much more of a blessing will it be for those like us who haven't seen him? There's a special blessing for those of us that believe, not because of what we saw, but because we didn't. And so ultimately we come to the end of that chapter when, you know, we're doing exegesis and exposition and especially in, in the epistles, when we're preaching from a certain point, we're looking for words like because, uh, so that, uh, therefore, that you may, so that you will know, things like that. We call those purpose clauses. So you read and you go, I'm looking for the purpose clause. You know, Paul is saying this long thing, this long list of things, this long thought, but you know, we tend to write in short paragraphs and sentences. We're Greek, you know, kind of, it's long. It goes on. It's a long, sometimes a very complex thought. And so we're looking for these purpose clauses. And so in a narrative like this, where it's simply a description of what is happening, in a narrative, you know, you have to sort of find, okay, what, what, is, what is the author's point? What's the intention? Well, John blessed us, really, because he says, he gives us the, the purpose clause. I mean, you don't even have to search for it. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also did in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that. That's the purpose of it. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. There's a difference between believing in something and believing on something. Someone taught me long ago. I believe in, uh, what do you call it? They walk people that walk a tightrope, you know, with the long balance bar. Acrobat. I believe in acrobats. I see acrobats. I've seen acrobats. It's impressive. I look at it and go, yeah, like I have no question in my mind. I, mean, I feel the emotion. You know, man, I hope they don't fall. I believe in them. The acrobat on that wire believes on the wire. They don't believe in the wire. I'm believing on it. If you're sitting in a chair right now, you're believing on that chair that it's not going to drop you. You get it? There's a difference between I believe in something and I believe on it in the sense that 
I rely on it and it better not fail because all of my weight, all of my safety, all of my future, all of my life hinges on that thing. So I would urge you today not just to believe in Jesus. Actually, that's kind of easy. It's actually easy to believe in Jesus. If you don't believe in Jesus, that's another discussion. Well, that's, I, you know, we, maybe I can help you with that. But believing on him is a whole different matter. That my faith and your faith is in him for salvation and the forgiveness of the sins, the debt that we can't repay. That's believing on him. And we need to believe on him. And so to hate evil, you have to, to implicate yourself in it. You have to hate what is in you. You don't just say, well, yeah, that's evil. Like, I, I want to be good. I don't want to be evil. I don't want to do evil. I don't want to be like that guy. You have to understand what evil is. And if you look honestly at yourself and your behavior and myself and myself and my time and everything I do, I'm not saying I'm a you know, wicked, ungodly man, but it is not hard at all to very easily find and go, I, that does not honor God. That does not honor God. And I long very much to honor God, and I hope that you do too. But turning to Christ and believing on him is predicated on the reality. It kind of depends, or what must come first, is you have to implicate yourself in evil. You're not just, you know, not a perfect guy. So we say, well, no one's perfect. I mean, everyone knows, I'm not, no one's perfect. It's like my car. Yeah, it's a nice car, but it's not perfect, but it's pretty nice. You know, it, we're not like that. There is something fundamentally not okay about us and with us. And so when we implicate ourselves in that and we realize the hopelessness of our estate, we can take pleasure in what the early part of the catechism, I think it's the first 10 or so questions, I believe. It says, did God leave us in that state? Did God leave us in a state of misery? And the answer is no, he did not leave us in a state of misery. He made a way for us. I say the early part because we spent the last... It's about two and a half years, I think, going through the Westminster, like one question every week, and it took us about two and a half years to finally, finally get through it. And so it's been a long time since we were on 1 through 15. So, but I remember that in the very beginning. Did God leave us in that wretched state? And I remember thinking, no, he didn't leave us there. Thank God. Praise God. And so is the resurrection true? Uh, my job is to not allow people to sit on the fence. That's my job. That's one of you know, my jobs, is to not allow people to sit on the fence. My job is to kick the fence, shake the fence, electrify the fence. My job is to do whatever I have to do to just force you off of that fence one way or the other. Now, that's going to happen in God's time. That's going to happen in God's time. But it is still our job as, you know, as evangelists, as preachers, actually all of us as believers, you know, to challenge the people around us and go, hey, what's, what's going on? Hopefully, you know, lovingly and, and with grace. And so 
we obey and we love God like Mary when we have been changed by him, when we know what he has done for us and will do for us. We have a king. We have a king. We have a Lord. We have a master. Our king says sex is to take place between men and women only within the bonds of marriage. That's what the king says. The state will say, well, that's, you know, that's it's an inappropriate form of, you know, discrimination. That's not right. You know, that kind of, so we have to, so who's your king? Because we're being pressed further and further and further to acquiesce, you know, well, okay. You have to decide who's your king. We will obey if the resurrection is true. It'll be easy. Yes, that's true. I know what is true. What about our money? Some of our money should find its way into God's work on this earth and into this local assembly. You know, if we're members here, if you go here, some of our money somewhere should, be, should find its way. If the resurrection is true and everything that follows, then obviously some of our money will be here. We will invest in the kingdom of God. Do you surrender, you know, your financial decisions to God? We will, if the resurrection is true. When we are wronged, will we forgive? If the resurrection is true, we must. And I'm, I'm picking these things because they're sort of right down to the, to the nitty-gritty. You know, they're very divisive things. But Jesus didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. So earlier in John, chapter 5, verse 24, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment. There's no judgment, no judgment for you, but has passed out of death into life. That's good news. And John 6, 47, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Later on, John 17, eternal life is a kind of an abstract term, isn't it? Eternal life, what, what is that? John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So to intimately know Christ and to intimately know God the Father, and of course to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit, that's what eternal life is. And these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the Christ, excuse me, the Son of God, and that believing we would have eternal life. And so one last thing I would leave you with and John 6:27 says do not work for the food which perishes which is what we all do of course it doesn't mean don't work don't have a job or anything like that but i think you understand the meaning jesus says do not work for the food which perishes but for the food which endures to eternal life which the son of man will give you for on him the Father, God, has set his seal. His seal of approval is on him. And so Jesus is your food. Jesus is to be our life.
Let's pray. Father, you have preserved the accounts of what happened, and we are left in the, the inescapable position of rejecting life or embracing life, rejecting truth or embracing truth. God, I look to you, we look to you for both direction and we look to you for care as our master. Father, we have worshipped many things. We have worshipped created things. Please forgive us and continue to work in our hearts and please continue to draw us to you. God, we are grateful that you did not leave us in our estate. You did not leave us in a bad, broken state. But throughout time and history, you have been relentless and unyielding in condescending to us, in coming to us, in seeking us out and being faithful even though we turn our back on you and that we do not honor you in the way that we should. And so, Father, I just want to end on a note of, of gratitude and thankfulness. And I would ask that if there is anyone among us or that we are in contact with that, that, is, un, that is as of yet unrepentant, that you would cause us to really see and evaluate under the guidance of the Spirit that we need to come to you, that the members of this church, the people who attend regularly would be available for questions, that we would seek one another out, say, hey, I, maybe I need to ask a question or would you, would you talk with me about something, but that that if there's anyone among us that is unrepentant, we would be open to lovingly open our arms to those people and, and pray with them and help them to, to come to you, Father. Father, I thank you for your time today. I thank you for your people. We thank you endlessly for the resurrection and even what comes after. There's still more. That's not even the end. There's still more. And we thank you so much for that, Father, and for all that you've done for us and continue to do. In Jesus' name, amen.